My wife is a master puzzle builder. She has this uncanny gift. Some of her puzzle building skills, I think, come from growing up in a family that is a puzzle family. I didn't know those existed until I met my wife. Um, but they're a family that, like, they'll get together grandpa and, and aunts and cousins, and they'll sit around a table with a massive puzzle and put it together, and they'll have fun <laughs> doing it. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> I, I, I don't really understand it, but they enjoy it, and I'm sure it's the fact that they're together, spending time together. Of course, there's wonderful conversation that happens, but as they're putting the puzzles together, out of, out of everyone I've ever seen in my life, I have never seen anyone, and you might think I'm biased, I really don't care, but I've never seen anyone as gifted at putting a puzzle together as my wife. She has this crazy gift to be able to just see the pieces and place them so quick. She puts it together so quick, so easy. And if you gave both of us the exact same puzzle and you said, ready, set, go, what might take me eight to 10, maybe 12 hours to accomplish, she would get done in like one to two. Like, it's unreal how good she is at putting a puzzle piece together. She'll start, of course, as everybody knows, with the border, getting that all identified and then built together. And then after getting the, bo the border assembled, she'll start clustering together pieces that she can tell will create a section of the puzzle. And she'll get those pieces put together to where there's kind of some main parts here, main parts here. And then she'll take all the crazy pieces, and I call them crazy pieces because they're the pieces that make me go crazy because they all look the same and have no no distinguishability from them, somehow she'll take those pieces and just go, oh, that goes there and there and there. And she'll just put it together and all of a sudden out of nowhere, voila, there's this beautiful, emotionally moving Thomas Kincaid picture with Christopher Robin holding Winnie the Pooh's hand under an umbrella splashing in a creek. Sorry, Wisconsin, in a crick. And <laughs> it's really impressive and makes my jaw drop watching her do it. And to me, I'm also sitting here going, man, to me, that's the most boring way to get a crick in my neck. But she loves it. She's good at it. And God has gifted her with this ability to be able to see every little piece for what it is and quickly find its place in what is the grander scope and scheme of whatever the piece of art might be. Today, we're kicking off a series through the book of Romans, and there are several ways in which it is a masterful assembly of the pieces of the puzzle of God's historical and eternal plan of redemption. We will see Paul put the picture together of the puzzle pieces of God's righteousness and man's sin and God's judgment on man's sin and God's salvation from sin through the cross of Christ. He'll show us how Abraham had, had a piece of the puzzle and how Israel has, has its place or its piece or its section of this puzzle. It's going to show us how Adam was a, a foundational corner piece of this puzzle as well. But then as all these pieces of the puzzle start coming together, you start seeing the picture forming that is Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel there's a section of the puzzle that comes together as Paul talks about our war internally between the sinful flesh that we have and the Holy Spirit of God within us. 
There might be a part or two of the puzzle in the book of Romans that we don't like or that's difficult or makes us feel uncomfortable and we go, I don't like that part of the puzzle. And Paul would say, well, God designed the puzzle and he gets to do what he wants. Kind of like a conversation I had with my daughters the other day where um, I had some mini donuts and I gave them one of them and then I got two or three or we'll pretend that we stopped there and and my daughter, Joey, she said, how come you get to? And I said, because I'm dad and I get to do what I want. <laughs> in God's master plan of redemption, in his eternal sovereign wisdom, he can do what he wants. And it is always good and it is always for his glory as we learned last week. And as we go on throughout this beautiful capsule of Paul's theology, which is Romans chapters 1 through 11. Then we'll get to chapter 12, where in chapter 12, he jerks the steering wheel over to a practical um, implications of the way that that theology plays out in our life, a lot like the book of James, where he goes, jerks that steering wheel over with the therefore, therefore by the mercies of God, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. That's why it's called Romans. A letter that would widely be regarded as Paul's magnus opum. It's a Latin term meaning his greatest work. In fact, many scholars would say it is the most important book of the Bible. Some would disagree, but many would make that statement. Even beyond that, its impact on the church and on Christianity throughout history has been profound. We could go back hundreds and hundreds of years ago. There was a man named Augustine who was already of great reputation as a profound, deep thinker and philosopher, yet at the same time he was very well known for his wild living, his licentious, um, lustful lifestyle, until one day a child hands him the book of Romans, and the book of Romans penetrates his heart changes his view of the world, of God, changes his theology, changes his heart, and he would then become um, one of the prominent church history figures that we know today. John Wesley's a name you might know, that he gave testimony to his radical salvation experience, his radical conversion into Christianity, wherein he heard a sermon from the book of Romans where he said he felt his heart, I love this, strangely warmed. He felt his heart strangely warmed by this sermon that he heard out of the book of Romans. You might have been familiar with a, a, a small thing that happened five years ago or 500 years ago called the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was born from the seeds of the book of Romans planted into the heart of this Augustinian monk named Martin Luther wherein that changed his mind, changed his heart, changed his theology that he was being trained in. And he said when it opened his eyes to understand the text of the book of Romans, he would never be the same. One of the most beautiful stories I could tell about the book of Romans is how there was a few years ago, five to ten years ago, there's a young adults conference called Cross Conference. 
And a few years ago, there was a pastor you might have heard of, David Platt, brilliant author of the book Radical. He was there scheduled to preach. And he gets up to give his sermon at cross conference. And you know what he does? He stands behind the pulpit and he quotes from memory Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 8. He just quotes the entirety of the first half of the book of Romans, and that's his sermon. He doesn't stop and go, what Paul means here, and see, the reason he said that is because X, Y, Z, and what you really need to understand, he just gets up, and he quotes the first eight chapters of Romans, and what's beautiful has happened is that it was reported that many came to faith and repentance that moment from just listening to the first eight chapters of Romans. We are dealing with a letter that can absolutely change your life. Moreover, that God can use this letter to change your life. If you're foggy or uncertain of what is the gospel, what is the good news, man, the book of Romans is for you. If you're unclear or uncertain of the way that, man, we've got the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and all these old patriarchs of the faith and the law and Moses and all that, but how does that translate into our New Testament? And what are the implications of that stuff on us today? The book of Romans is for you. If you're longing to truly, deeply know the forgiveness and love of God for you, where his grace soaks into the coldest, darkest recesses of your heart. The book of Romans is for you. If you're self-righteous and you think that God is really impressed with how holy you are, and that God loves you and is so impressed by your good works, and you, you look at other people that are unbelievers and in your heart, like the Pharisee, you might go, man, I thank God I'm not like them. I'm a good person. The book of Romans is for you. If you want to learn more about the practical implications of what it looks like to live a life of faith in Christ, a living sacrifice, the book of Romans is for you. If you want to see the 30,000 foot view of the sovereign power, wisdom, plan, and glory of God to where it stirs up awe and wonder and worship in your heart, the book of Romans is for you. If none of that has hit you, if you have a beating heart, the book of Romans is for you. Here's my challenge to you. As we are going through the book of Romans, I challenge you, I dare you, I implore you, I beg you to stick with us in this series. Start now, week one, Follow all the way through. Maybe if you're today here, is your first time visiting us, you're checking out the church, that's a great day to do so. I challenge all of you to dive into the book of Romans. Go home, read it on your own. Study it, research, get a good study Bible. Pray about what you've learned. Talk with others about it. Stick with us through this entire book of Romans and watch what God will do. Now, Paul's letter to the Romans is unique from other letters that he wrote. You know, he wrote that Ephesians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians. He wrote Philippians and Thessalonians. It was unique from those other letters in several, sen uh, several senses. Uh, one of the unique features was his relationship to the audience. 
Paul's relationship to the Romans was different than all the other letters that Paul wrote. Every other letter that Paul wrote, like to the Ephesians or the Philippians or the Thessalonians, all those letters he wrote to churches that he planted and people that he knew and their drama that he was very well acquainted with. Although Paul did not plant the church in Rome, nor had he ever even been there. Of all of Paul's journeys and his three missionary journeys and all of his travels, he hadn't been to Rome. Although he wanted to go there, he hadn't been there yet, and he didn't plant this church. In fact, church history doesn't really teach us who planted the church um, in Rome, yet common scholarship would mostly agree that it was Christian or Jews who became Christians on Pentecost in Jerusalem and then came back to Rome where they lived and then began a church community there. So it would have started as Jewish Christians. And then, of course, as these Jewish Christians spread the gospel in Rome, there would become Gentiles, Gentiles meaning someone who's not a Jew. There would be Gentiles who would come to faith in Christ as well, and they would come into the body of Christ, come into the church. And so that church began to grow with Jewish Christians and then Gentile Christians. And if you were a Gentile Christian who was saved or led to Christ by a Jewish Christian, the chances are that this church in Rome began as one that, that was steep in Jewish tradition. And also a church that still would prioritize a lot of the Mosaic law. And then an interesting thing happened in A.D. 49, which would be about eight years before Paul wrote this letter. The emperor Claudius Caesar, the emperor of Rome, started to hear about these, this new sect of Judaism called Christians. And he's going, oh, this new sect, and there's people that are disagreeing, and there's some debate between the Jews and the Christians. And he was concerned that there might be a riot that would rise up. And so what does he do? Well, what any reasonable person would do, he kicked out all the Jews. He expelled all Jews from Romans. That was sarcasm. That's not reasonable. Sorry. He expelled all Jews from Rome to just go, we're not going to have some revolt or some riot or some uprising in the epicenter of our empire. Then, eight years later, as Paul's writing this letter to the church in Rome, over that eight years, many Jews began trickling back into Rome, going back to live there, reintegrating back into the Roman church. And from that, the, the, Jew, the Jewish Christians who came back to the church come back and go, oh, you guys done messed this thing up. You're not circumcising people anymore. You're not obeying the Jewish kosher dietary laws, the Hebrew laws that God gave us or that God gave to Moses. And so there started to become a few schisms and rifts over what place does Judaism, what place does the Mosaic law have in relationship to this new or this fulfilled faith of Christianity, which is a Jewish faith that has been fulfilled in Christ. Okay, <clears throat> excuse me. Why does it matter that, um, this is a, that we understand this is a church that Paul did not know, had never been to? Well, because there are implications or it, it, it's, it motivated the way that he wrote some of the things he said in his letter. And then after, we'll see in this letter, Paul addressing what is the place of the Mosaic law? What is the place of the Jewish faith in the Christian faith? 
And then he's going to turn into the practical implications of the faith on all of us. From that, he then writes and summarizes his complete theology, if you will. Maybe not exhaustive. There's other things we see that he teaches to other churches about his Christology, different things about Jesus. But if he, it's almost as if the first 11 chapters of Romans is Paul going, okay, if I need to write an essay on what is the Christian faith, here it is. Probably, uh, Paul probably wrote this letter from Corinth in AD 57. And his hope was to go up to Rome, stop there for a little while, see all them, minister to them, be ministered to by them, and then head over to Spain. And he had great hopes also that uh, Rome would become the epicenter of the gospel movement. Okay, let's get into the text. If you've got your Bibles and you haven't turned to Romans chapter 1 yet, I don't know what you're doing. So go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1. We're going to see the way that Paul begins his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Seven verses. That's how far we're going to get today. What we're going to see here is six things that Paul does in these seven verses. One, we're going to see the way he reveals his apostolic authority. We'll see the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures in the gospel. We'll see that the gospel centers on... Jesus Christ. We'll see that that gospel then leads to the obedience of faith and that that obedience of faith then spreads to the mission to the Gentiles and all of it is to the glory of Jesus Christ and God the Father. Let's look again at verse 1. Paul said, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Notice the way Paul introduces himself. You know, if you and I were pen pals and we were writing each other, you wrote me a letter, I wrote a letter to you, I would write my letter to you and it would probably start with, Dear John, I would address you. That's not the way that they wrote letters in ancient Hellenistic culture. They would know that the person who's receiving the letter knows who it's to and therefore, they would identify themselves in the letter. Paul identifies himself going, hey, I'm Paul, the one who's writing to you. This is the same guy in the book of Acts that we see called Saul. And some people have, have said, you know, Paul, on, in Acts chapter 9, when he had his encounter with the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, where, where God saved him and called him into the ministry, that God also changed his name, kind of like Abraham, how Abraham was first Abram, and then God gives Abraham the Abrahamic covenant and changes his name to Abraham. That's not really accurate. 
Saul wasn't converted into Paul where God changes his name. Actually, the term Saul or the name Saul translated into the Greek culture is a derogatory term. So he didn't want to go around into this Hellenistic culture with his name where he's going, hey, everyone, I'm a derogatory term. Nice to meet you. And so he adapts to a Hebrew terminology or a Hebrew phrase that's similar to his name Saul, but is Paul, and it literally means little. Some would say he took that because he's small in stature. Some would say he took that because he saw himself as least among the apostles, as he said multiple times. This is the same guy, though, who before was persecuting the church, who was a zealous Pharisee, who was um, practicing Uh, Judaism and hated Christians, but by the grace of God was saved and brought into the ministry. Paul calls himself this. He says, I am a servant. Now, excuse me. That's a term that you and I might feel a little softer than they would have read from the Greek term there. Another term that probably might have been better to say there is bondservant, because what Paul had in view from the term that he used was literally slave. When he said, I am a servant of Christ Jesus, he would have been saying to them, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. He's trying to say to them, I am not my own. He's like, I didn't sign up for this. I was drafted. I was voluntold. Anybody ever been voluntold for something? probably by your spouse before, but, uh, or maybe by your parents. Paul's saying, I was voluntold because I am not my own. I am a servant of Christ Jesus, a bondservant, a slave of him. Therefore, I don't do what I want to do. I do what my master wants me to do. Before he goes into saying, I'm an apostle, and talking about the authority that's been given to him by God, he's saying, first and foremost, I am a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, there's two ways in which the term apostle, this Greek word apostolos, there's two ways this word is used in the New Testament around 70 times. Almost all of them, the larger percentage of them, more than three-fourths of the use of that term apostle is talking about the office of the apostle. It's talking about the 12 that Jesus called and authorized to be his representatives. These are the people that God authorized to write and have their writings turned into canonized scripture, wherein today, thousands of years later, we go, this is the word of God, not just the word of man. Why? Because these people were apostles. There is a much smaller section of a few times that the word apostle is used as a descriptive sense of anyone who is sent as a messenger of God. So I I say that just because there can be a little bit of confusion in Scripture sometimes where you see someone called an apostle when it's like, wait a minute, that wasn't one of the categorized people that, that Jesus called a disciple and then authorized as apostles. There is an authority given to the office of apostle, which Paul is identifying himself with, and multiple times in his other letters, saying, I'm an apostle. And when they would write and say, hey, I'm Paul, an apostle, they were basically telling their audience, you better be listening to me because the things I'm writing to you are coming to you as the word of God. Saying, I'm not saying these things to you as just a man who has an opinion about God. 
An apostle was someone who bore the authority as an envoy, as an ambassador, as an official authorized representative to speak on behalf of the person who sent them, to make decisions on behalf of that person. And if I was a king's apostle to you, and I came and spoke to you on behalf of the king, you would understand that it's not me talking, it's the king talking. Paul lays out his authority saying, I'm first and foremost a slave, a servant of Christ. Oh, and by the way, I'm also an apostle, so we better take his words seriously. Then he goes on to say that he is set apart for the gospel. <coughs> Excuse me. He says he's been set apart for the gospel, and that is the theme of this entire letter. You want to know what the theme of the letter to the Romans is? It is this, the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. This is where later what we'll see next week is Paul's going to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation. Paul's saying, man, God called me, picked me. He's made me his slave. And my assignment is to bear the gospel forward, to take this good news message. And we'll see him now lightly unpack what that gospel is, this gospel concerning the Son of God. The second thing that we see is Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament. Paul said, fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Man, do I want to take some time digging into the breadth of this. And I'm going to nutshell this for us pretty quickly. The very first biblical prophecy we have about Jesus is in Genesis chapter 3. What has been now called the Proto-Evangelium, or the first prophecy, the first evangelistic statement, wherein Adam and Eve had just sinned, and they're reaping and learning the consequences of their sin, but God doesn't just abandon them to their sin. He says, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent as the serpent strikes his heel. This is the Proto-Evangelium, or the first biblical prophecy about Jesus, that even though Adam and Eve had sinned, welcoming sin and death into the world, God even right there at the very beginning is saying, yet I will one day send someone to crush the head of the serpent and destroy and redeem everything that you guys just messed up. We see in Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, where he said, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And here we go. He says, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What does that mean? Does that mean that through Abraham, all of us are going to be rich and prosperous? No. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, we, or Acts chapter 3, we see the fulfillment of this where Peter's preaching. He said, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, talking about Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. That is the blessing of Abraham thousands of years later in Jesus Christ that he came to bless us by turning us from our wickedness. I could talk about the covenant promises and prophecies to Isaac and to so many other other patriarchs, but here's what I'll say. May I speak to your doubts this morning, to the skeptic here, or the part of your heart that might even time to time rise up as a skeptic. 
to the person who might say, the Bible isn't reliable, it's not trustworthy for us today, it's an ancient book of fairy tales, Jesus isn't really the Son of God, he was just a good teacher, blah, blah, blah. Let me just break this down for you for a second. The probability that Jesus could fulfill eight, just eight prophecies, the probability that Jesus would only fulfill eight prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. Let's get our head around that. That's one with 17 zeros past it. That's greater than the U.S. national debt, <laughs> which is pretty big. To help us get our head around that number and the statistical possibility that someone in their lifetime could fulfill eight prophecies, let me give you a picture. If you took the state of Texas, it's big, <laughs> okay, everything's bigger in Texas. If you took the state of Texas and you filled the entire state of Texas two feet deep with, in your honor, cheese curds. If you filled the entire state of Texas two feet deep with cheese curds and every single one of those cheese curds was the size of a silver dollar and every single one of those cheese curds was filled with yellow cheddar, except for one cheese curd had white cheddar in it. Come on now. I'll be honest, Joe, I can't really taste the difference, but I'll pretend I'm with you. And you took that one white cheese curd and you chartered a helicopter and you flew out over the state of Texas and you just flicked it out. And then you had someone else get on a plane with a parachute and parachute randomly out into the state of Texas and land amongst the heaven of cheese curds and pick one cheese curds, excuse me, in hopes that that is the one sole white cheese curd. That is the likelihood that someone could fulfill eight prophecies in their lifetime. That's how unlikely it is that Jesus could do everything that was said about him. Or actually, that's how likely it is that he could only fulfill eight, eight prophecies. Guys, guess what? He fulfilled over 300 prophecies. Let me up, up, up at one, one degree here. He fulfilled 27 prophecies in one day. The day we call Good Friday. 27 prophecies he fulfilled on that day. He would be portrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. He would, uh, th those pieces would be cast to the floor. The betrayal money would be used to buy a potter's field. He would be forsaken and deserted by his disciples. He would be accused by false witnesses. He would be silent before his accusers. He would be wounded and bruised. He would be hated without cause. He would be struck and spit on. He would be mocked, ridiculed, and rejected. He would collapse from his weakness. He would be taunted with specific words. People would shake their heads at him. People would stare at him. He would be executed among sinners. His hands and feet would be pierced. He would pray for his prosecutors. His friends and family would stand afar off and watch. His garments would be divided and won by casting lots. He would thirst. His side would be pierced. His none of his bones would be broken. He would cry out to the Father in the moment of suffering, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. 
His disfigurement by the, brutal of, uh, by the brutality of the soldiers was prophesied. He would be buried in the tomb of a rich man. And then my favorite at the 30,000 foot view is that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. 27 prophecies Jesus fulfilled on a Friday. Friends, God's word is inspired. It is inerrant. It is authoritative. It is trustworthy. And if you reject it and reject this Jesus Christ whom Paul preaches as the fulfillment of these th over 300 prophecies, if you reject that, it is because of the heart that loves sin that then drives you to bury your head in the sand. Be careful not to let your confirmation bias show of something that you just don't want to believe because you don't want to accept that there is a judge who sees all, who knows every act and every thought that you've ever had. And that is also, though, forgetting the good news that the God who sees all paid for every single sin with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. This is the good news that Paul preaches. All of this proceeds to the next point Paul made, that Jesus is the center of the Bible story. At the end of verse one, he said, the gospel of God, going into verse two, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul states that this good news that he's been given and been given to, this gospel, is a good news about God's Son. That Jesus Christ, who fulfilled all that prophecy, he points out that he was from the line of David according to the flesh. If you read the opening genealogies in the book of Matthew, they're pretty important because they're proving once more to all of the Jewish audience that this Jesus, this Messiah and Savior, is in fact their Jewish Messiah and Savior because he is of the lineage of David, fulfilling the prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God said to David, I will establish your throne forever. That throne that is established forever, that there would be one to rule on forever, is fulfilled in his line, in his son, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit of God affirmed Jesus as the son of God. How? Paul says, by the resurrection from the dead, as the Holy Spirit raised him up from the dead. See, when Jesus walked out of the tomb, when he got up from the dead, folded his linen cloths neatly in the tomb and walked out. The debate as to whether or not he was who he said he was was over. The debate as to whether or not he truly was the son of God or was he just some lunatic. That debate ended. The Holy Spirit confirms Jesus not as a teacher, <coughs> not just as a prophet, not as a good person, but as the Son of God, the deity that he is, both fully God and fully man at the same time, when he rose from the dead and walked out the grave. 
The Holy Spirit was confirming he was who he said he was. The only debate remains in the heart of those who don't want to believe it, which we'll see more about in the next week or two. We have a value at our church, a core value. We keep Jesus at the center. We keep Jesus at the center. Why? Because Christ alone is the hope of the world. Jesus Christ is the only one who could ever fulfill all the prophecies. He's the only one who could ever live a perfect sinless life and then willingly go to the brutal cross, bearing our sin, our shame on his body, making payment for us that we could be forgiven and welcomed back into the family of God. We will always be a gospel-centered church. Why? Echoing Paul and what you will see throughout the entire New Testament and what you see set up in the Old Testament is that the message of the gospel is the message. The message is not self-improvement. The message is not be a good person and increase your morality. The message is not follow God so he can fix your life and bless you and give you everything you've ever hoped and wished for. The message is that you are dead in sin, but there is a good and loving God who brings death to life in faith in Christ Jesus. Next, we see Paul say that, that God gave him grace and apostleship. Why? To bring about the obedience of the faith. He said this in verses four and five, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. You remember last week as we talked about the glory of God's name, for the sake of his name, that our obedience of the faith is to the praise of God's glory for the sake of his name among the nations. Friends, when, when the grace of God soaks into our hearts and changes our nature, changes our desire to where we no longer want sin, we might war and wrestle against it, but God has changed our hearts to where we long for righteousness and we long for holiness. We long for God and his word and his prayer and his people and his worship that, that we want those things. When we do that, the obedience of the faith then gives testimony to the nations where people start looking at us and go, you're weird. What's different? And although at first it might look to the world like, you bunch of weirdos, you don't do this and you don't do this and you do give one day of your week every week to go gather together and sing songs. Like, you guys are weird. You give your money to this? That's weird. You could use your money for other things, better things. You gather together and talk about this and study this? You get up early in the morning and you talk to God? Like, that's weird. They start to see it, yet at the same time, they're drawn to it. And won't you know how many of you can testify to how many times your coworkers, your friends, your family, when, when the metaphorical fecal matter hits the fan in their life, who do they go to? The weirdos who trust in Christ. Leon Morris would say, obedience follows from the truth that Paul expressed in his opening line when he described himself as a slave of Christ. Believers belong to Christ without reserve. If you belong to Christ, you don't get to go, I'm keeping this part, God. You can have all this, but don't touch this. We have no reserve if we belong to Christ. Therefore, they owe him the most complete 
obedience. It is not without interest that this epistle, this letter, which puts such a stress on free salvation, won for us by Christ's atoning act, that it should also stress the importance of obedience of the faith. Obedient response. That would show us that freedom in Christ brings obedience to Christ. If you've been given freedom from sin and death in Christ Jesus, that breeds in your heart in obedience to Christ Jesus. And if you have not had obedience to Christ Jesus begin sinking into your heart as something you want to do, then it's possible you haven't experienced true freedom in Christ yet and you've just been learning about God and religion in general. Lastly, we see that we are called into the love of God, where he said in verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to those who are in Rome who are called or, or who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You are called to belong to Jesus Christ. This is the first indication in the book of Romans of the controversial doctrine of election. What we'll see through this letter is that this is a clear biblical truth that is anchored as an anchor to the soul in the deepest and darkest days of our life. And it is a truth that is also balanced by the tension of man's responsibility. What we'll see in this same letter in Romans chapter 10, where Paul says that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Scripture has plenty of seemingly paradoxical truths that we must learn to live in the tension between without discarding the ones we don't like or prefer. We don't get to throw away Holy Spirit-inspired truth for the ones we like better. To all those who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Guys, here's my prayer as we venture through the book of Romans. My hope and prayer is that this book will convince you brother, will convince you, sister, of how deeply you are loved by God. There are going to be moments where Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 7, this letter is going to make you look in the mirror and see yourself as a sinner. It's going to rob you of the self-deception that you are good And it's going to steal and take away from you, in the good sense, the idea that because you are good, you are entitled to good things from God. Yet, we will see in Romans 5 and in Romans 6, right here in Romans 1, we'll see in Romans 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, so many places, how great the love of God is for you how great his love is for you. And I hope, friends, that the Holy Spirit will be at work with his word to make you believe it. To not just read it and go, okay, God loves me and I get that in my head, but to where it soaks down and seeps into your heart and saturates the innermost part of who you are. Where just like John Wesley, you could say, I feel this strange warmth that thaws out the cold, hardened heart 
by sin and the light of the gospel of the love of God as seen in Jesus Christ warms and thaws you out like the shining of the sun with frost on the ground that as the sun rises that frost melts away for us today if we have an application point it is simply this to believe it to believe in who Jesus Christ is, to respond to this good news of the gospel with genuine faith and genuine repentance. And if that's you today, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand and repeat a prayer after me. What I will encourage you to do is if the Holy Spirit is pricking your heart, if you've heard these truths today and you're going for the first time, man, I do believe, I want to believe, I want to follow him then in your own words, from your heart, confess your sin to the Lord. Ask God to forgive you. Ask him to come in and make you new, indwelling you with his Holy Spirit. God will do it. He will do it today. And if that is you, let us know, because we would love to walk alongside you with baptism and discipleship unto the glory of God. God, we thank you for your word. My prayer is that you would be glorified in our midst by the work of your Holy Spirit, wherein your word transforms us, changes us, grows us, and transforms us more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. God, be glorified in the work that you do in our midst. You are a great, great God. We thank you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.